I phoned my sister. I'm stuck in the barn and there's a big cat outside. Can you come and do something? And she laughed at me. I just froze. <laughs> didn't want to move because I didn't want it coming towards me or anything, something like that. You think, where the hell has that come from? Welcome to Big Cat Conversations. We speak directly to people who've encountered one of Britain's big cats. We also discuss the bigger picture. I'm Rick Minter, and thanks for joining me. Welcome to episode 82 of Big Cat Conversations. We're coming to you in September 2022, if you're listening on schedule. For this episode, we'll be hearing about an encounter from 1993 in Devon, and we've selected it because it raises several talking points from the things that happened. In addition, we have some other highly relevant things to discuss, because our guest has also worked with leopards and with lynx as a zookeeper, and she had a spell at Heathrow Airport's Animal Reception Centre. So our guest is Claire, based in Devon. Claire, thanks for coming on the podcast, and welcome. No problem, thanks for having me. Thank you, Claire. And the usual first question, I know this was back in 1993 in Somerset when you lived there, but at that time, before this incident, had you given Big Cat sightings any thought at all? Did you know about Big Cat sightings at that time? I guess I hadn't really given it a lot of thought, but like everybody from sort of that area, I was aware of sort of Beast of Bodmin and and talk of that and maybe sightings in the paper and things, but I hadn't really given it a lot of thought as a kind of teenage girl in Somerset. Righto. We may as well get straight to the incident. So it was in the summer and you were walking down a country lane, is that right? It was, yeah. So it was August time because I was on school holidays and it would have been about half past eight, nine in the evening. My curfew was at 9pm and I wouldn't have been late. So I guess it was sort of about half past eight, nine o'clock. And I was walking home from a friend's house down a country lane on the outskirts of a little village near Chard in Somerset. It was kind of one of those country lanes that have kind of grass up the road and the only people that really drove on it were residents of the lane or the, the village. So it was very quiet. And certainly at that time of night it was. So I was just walking home and my first indication that there was something going on was there was a lot of crows in the trees and they were sort of calling and making a bit of a racket. And initially I thought it was because of me, um, because there was nobody else about and I thought I was upsetting them. And then I just happened to see movement at the corner of my eye, if you like. The road that I was walking down was flanked on the left by kind of open fields that are left to sort of grassland for kind of, I guess, silage or hay. And on the right, there was trees. So it's quite densely sort of wooded on the right-hand side. And on the left-hand side, in a ditch on the side of the road, I saw a big black cat. So I'm guessing it was about 20, 25 metres away from me. And it was kind of crouched down, but not in a typical stalking mode like you might expect a cat to see. It was definitely looking at me and looking at the birds and it was kind of face on to me. So I stopped in my tracks and just stared at it for what seemed like a lifetime, <laughs> but it was probably only a few seconds. Once it realised that I wasn't going to continue on my path or walk past it, it then climbed out of the ditch, um, walked very sort of confidently, nonchalantly across the road, again, not taking much notice of me. When it reached the other side of the road, it kind of looked up again at the crows that were making a bit of a racket. It looked back at me and then went through the hedge. It was a very thin hedge, went through the hedge on the right-hand side into the woods, into the trees. 
Luckily, I was only about half a mile from home, so I wasn't too far from home. But as soon as it disappeared, I kind of waited for, I guess, a few seconds up to a minute to make sure it wasn't going to poke back out again. And then I sort of walked around very quickly home. (laughs) Was there a suspense moment when you were judging what you thought it might do? Did you feel it was placid and not really bothering with you? Or did you think, what if it takes an interest in me? What was its attitude? How was it looking at you? How was it judging you? It definitely crossed my mind that I could be in, potentially be in trouble. It definitely crossed my mind, but I didn't pick up any vibes like that from the cat. It was just not really interested in me. I think it would have quite happily stayed in the ditch and let me walk past um, and let me sort of get that close to it. But obviously I wasn't brave enough to do that. But once it realised that I wasn't going to move, it was kind of like, that, well, I'll, I'll move on then kind of attitude. Wasn't bothered about me at all. Didn't even acknowledge the fact that I was there. It was more bothered by the crows and the noise they were making, I think. I mean, that is interesting, the, the crow behaviour, because it does crop up in reports. We don't have many on the podcast. I suspect we'll get some mm. in the future. Amongst witness reports generally, you do get people who notice them because they first notice crows or birds making a racket and mobbing something. Why do you think they were so bothered and, and mobbing it? I guess it's just something out of the norm. I guess any sort of predator in their area would make them make an alarm call. And I guess it's just something that's so out of the ordinary, you know, that time of night. Do you think its actual action was provoking them in some way? I don't think so. I don't think so. And and knowing sort of what I know a little bit now, I don't think it would pose much of a risk to them. I think it was just sort of they were alerting to the fact that it was there. What did you make of the behaviour? Why do you think it was there? I just think it was crossing from sort of one place to another, really. There was nothing, obviously nothing to hunt on the road and and nothing like that. I think it was just merely moving sort of through the area. It probably would have seen me before I saw it. So maybe, yeah, it it kind of came to the head, spotted me a a while off and just lay down in the ditch or or sat in the ditch and while it assessed the situation, maybe, I don't know. Okay. What were sort of standout features? Standout things was firstly the size. I know everyone says it, but it was about the size of a Labrador. And I actually had a Labrador as a family pet at the time. And when it stood up, my dog often gets in the ditch where it was. And it was the same level. So I'm saying it was about the same height. I would say head height was and shoulder height was about the same as a Labrador. When my dog got in the ditch, it was kind of level with it. So firstly, the size. Um, and initially, I did think it, like everyone does, a big black dog. Firstly, the size. Then when it climbed out of the ditch... I could see the tail. It was definitely longer than a Labrador. And the tail was the same length as the body, if not a little bit more, because the tail does sort of curve around at the end. And the tail didn't taper at all. The tail was the same thickness from sort of top to bottom. Didn't taper like a sort of domestic cat's tail or a dog's tail. It was black and shiny, had quite a rounded face and rounded ears. Yeah, so... So that the, initially, the first of all, was the size, the tail, and then the movement. Uh, and as it moved across the road, it kind of just slinked. There was no noise at all. If my dog had walked across that road with the sort of loose stones, it would have made a sort of crunching noise as it walked across. But there was no noise from this at all. Just silently walked across the road in front of me. Yeah. So you had a very good view of it at different angles. Yeah. Seeing it both calm and still and moving. Did you see any markings? What did you make of the colour and shade and the fur thickness and all of that? I didn't. It looked to be completely black, or there was certainly no no sort of white or lighter colours on it. Everything was black. I didn't see any sort of spots or anything or rosettes underneath the, the black colour. It was quite a sort of sunny 
evening so the the sun was bright but I didn't see any markings underneath the fur but the fur looked to be quite thick quite dense and glossy. Looking back on it do you think it was a black leopard? Looking back on it now I do yeah at the time I didn't know how to describe it and in fact when I got home I mentioned it to my mum and my stepdad and I was like, I've just seen a black lion. Ah. <laughs> um, <laughs> and then they thought I was obviously thought what? And I said, yeah, it's, it's a big black cat the size of my, you know, the hobo, the dog. Once they realised I wasn't joking, I obviously appeared a little bit shaken up. So once they realised I wasn't joking, my stepdad actually grabbed a torch and said, well, show me where it went. And I showed them where it went through the hedge and the hedge was quite sparse where it actually went through. But once we sort of got through the hedge we couldn't see anything obviously it was long gone by then this is kind of like a few minutes later the trees were too dense but they did come down and have a look <laughs> did they interpret it as a panther initially i said it was a black lion and mum sort of said to me what do you mean and i said well like in the paper and she said do you mean the beast of bodmin and i said yeah like that and then she mentioned panther and that's where i sort of got the description from i couldn't google it so I think we went down the next week and got some books from the library and had a look and I kind of pointed out what I'd seen. You took the dog back, did you? I mean, that's great. You went back. No, we didn't take the dog back. No, I was too scared to let the dog out. No, I just kind of said it was a big black cat the size of the dog, but we didn't take the dog back, no. <laughs> OK, but you did go straight away back to the scene. Yeah, we did. Yeah, um, my stepdad was obviously interested in, in seeing where it went and so was my mum. So he kind of grabbed a torch because it's quite dark under the trees. And I hung back. I hung back in the middle of the road. I was too chicken to sort of cross the, into the hedge. But he certainly had, had a look around but couldn't see anything. I don't know if we checked for paw prints or anything. It was too long ago, but I don't know if they did. I know that there were some other events at the time which perhaps were related to this animal's presence. So do you want to tell us about other things that happened in and around the, the property and the land? Yeah, sure. So, yeah, there was. And at the time, we didn't attribute it to anything. It was only after that I had this sighting. And I believe mum sort of asked around the village and asked some of our neighbours. And it was only after that this had happened that we kind of thought, well, maybe it was it was the cat. So we lived on a small holding and we had all the normal things. We had chickens, we had horses. At one time, we had a few sheep and obviously we had dogs and cats. We also had a load of barn cats that were kind of feral, but we did feed them and keep an eye on them. They were, the, you know, they were sort of neutered and everything and just lived in the barn. So we noticed a few of those going missing. And again, because they were feral, we just assumed that they'd run off or they'd found another farm or someone else to feed them or better mousing grounds or something. But again, you know, looking back, maybe that they were predated on. Who knows? Also, our horses, we didn't really have any field shelter in with the horses. So if the weather was going to be not very nice or the temperatures were going to drop, we used to bring them into the stables. When we brought them in, we used to feed them. So most of the time they were quite keen to come in for their evening feed and for a hay net. There were a couple of occasions where they were bunched together in the middle of the field away from the hedges and they refused to move. And we actually had to go to them and, and put a head collar on them and lead them in. And they were very spooked. Ears were pricked up and alert. Kind of like, a, I, I say a bit snorty. Anyone that's got horses or had horses knows what I mean by that. But they were very alert and very unwilling to kind of leave the field. And we were, you know, at the time would get quite annoyed. You know, we wanted to sort of go in and, and say, come on, just, just come in and stop being so silly. But afterwards, maybe we thought maybe that the cat was around or maybe there was something else that was definitely spooking them. Did that happen before and after the sighting or only after? Yeah, I can remember distinctly three occasions it happening. 
I can remember two before and one after, after the sighting. It was that that we kind of, you know, maybe thought about that. And, and also our dogs, um, because obviously we have the, the poultry, we used to get quite a few foxes and, and the occasional badger as well. And when the dogs used to hear that from inside the house, they used to bark. So obviously we'd open the door and then run normally down the field, barking and making a bit of a racket. But there were a couple of times that they made a noise like there was a fox or something around. And when the door was open for them to go out, they refused to go out, which was completely out of character. If it was a fox or or a badger or something like that, they would just naturally run off and, and chase it off. But there was a couple of times where they would maybe go out a few feet away from the door, but then come back in again. And sometimes they would refuse to go out at all. In terms of discussing this sort of thing with neighbours and other people around, were you cautious who you told and who you wanted to talk it through with? Or was it helpful to get other people confirming that they were getting similar vibes? To be honest, I, I told my best friend, the one who whose house I was sort of on the way back from, from visiting. I told her, I don't think she was particularly interested or showed an interest or just went, oh, you know, that, that's cool. But anyway, have you seen this latest magazine or something? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, I think, yeah, uh, my my mum was more the one that was asking around. And I remember she asked a couple of our closest neighbours, but she didn't want to ask, I kind of in the village or in the local town, she just asked a couple of our neighbours. And I remember her putting it quite carefully. And I remember her saying, oh, you know, she had to broach the subject quite carefully and say, have you noticed anything unusual? I remember her being quite shocked that neither one of them, the people that she spoke to, were surprised. The one guy had a few sheep and he said that he noticed, he said back along, so maybe about a month before my sighting, I don't know how long ago it was, but he noticed a sheep carcass underneath a hedge. And he remarked at the time that it was very strange that it was dragged so far under the hedge. And then another one of our neighbours, she was walking her dog in the same kind of little wooded area where I saw this cat go. She was walking her dog and she said that she saw something like a big cat taking a drink out of the stream. Any more detail than that, I, I wouldn't know because, I did, like I said, I didn't really speak to them. I'm just sort of going on what my mum said at the time. That must have been helpful to you and your mum. There was some other context possibly for it. I must admit, I certainly felt better when she told me. I must have felt better and I think maybe she did as well. I felt like I'd got a little bit of a backup, you know, <laughs> like I didn't make it up. I wasn't, you know, I wasn't imagining anything or it wasn't just a childhood thing or something, you know, it actually did happen. So, yeah, I, I felt I certainly felt better when, when she told me, yeah. Do you remember how it influenced the family and yourself as an individual emotionally at the time? Did you feel there was a threat around or did you feel it was cool and you just had to coexist with some predator about, you know, was there any kind of emotional feeling you had as a family or individually? From that point forward, and certainly after mum had spoken to the neighbours, I think as a family, we were a little bit more cautious with the outside animals. So I think we would kind of lock them up a little bit earlier and maybe bring the horses in and, and definitely the few pet sheep that we had, we'd bring them in a little bit earlier. I just remember us being reluctant to sort of let the dogs out after dark or anything like that. would like everything sort of locked up tight, but I don't remember feeling particularly threatened. I think it was more cautious. And you made a few practical adjustments yeah. To activities, yeah, which I, I hear other landowners and property owners and smallholders do. People just do that and don't think much of it. But it is interesting that shows you take it seriously, really, doesn't it? Yes, it does. Yeah, yeah, definitely. OK. Now, you were saying to me in preparation before this on, on emails that um, your brother 
was in the military and he heard about one being used as a guarding animal. Now this crops up quite a bit of people having them as a sort of heavy duty guard dog type thing. Here's another one, you know, so so could you tell us about that? Yeah, definitely. So this only came up very recently, actually. I tend to listen to, um, obviously, your podcast and, and a few others. And my brother's just started to, so he sort of said, oh, can you recommend any? And I recommended yours. And he said, oh, it's funny you should say that. I think it was back in the 80s in Northern Ireland. And he said that the local scrapyard dealer had a pair of, he said, panthers, a pair of black panthers that he used to take around in the back of his Land Rover. And he said that they would be chained up in his scrapyard after dark. But maybe once or twice a week, he would take them out on a chain and let them sort of, I guess, exercise themselves around the woods. He did mention cubs. He said that they were they had a male and a female. And he said because he offered to sell them a cub. Hmm. Um, and he said sometimes when he can't sell them or find a home, he's let a few go. I think he mentioned at least three or four. This was in Northern Ireland, the scrap metal dealer, was it? Northern Ireland, yeah. You hear of, of different types of people having them as guarding animals, but particularly scrap metal people. So it just shows you something about that culture and mindset, isn't it? I've never encountered this before. It just seemed bizarre to me that this would, that would happen. But yeah, when you mentioned that you'd heard it before, I thought, well, <laughs> it just seems crazy to me to, to have those animals like that. But who knows? Probably more that we don't know about as well, but quite similar in situations, yeah. Definitely. Can we move on to the the vet nurse experience? Because you trained as a vet nurse, and in the early days of that, you spent some time at the Heathrow Airport Animal Reception Centre, which I think sometimes gets on telly, doesn't it? There's, there's sort of TV snippets from that. So that must have been very interesting. And tell us some highlights from that and any relevant lessons from that. So I had a very sort of brief stint there. It was during my animal management degree, we had to undertake a certain amount of work experience as part of the course. And obviously, we sort of had a couple of places lined up and and that was one of the places. And I was lucky enough to go there for a few weeks. I went during Crofts Week, so I saw a lot of fancy dogs coming in and out. I also saw um, they had some resident civets that were living in the centre. If animals get confiscated and things have to be investigated, they hold on to the animals until things are cleared and they can be rehomed. So they had a couple of civets there, also had a couple of savannah cats that were coming to an owner in the UK for breeding. Of course, in those days, that would have been a bit early for savannas, for the trend in savannas much more recent, but I guess that was an early stage. Yeah, yeah, this was sort of early 2000s. I remember the savannas being quite leggy, quite unusual. They were quite leggy and I remember we had to go in with a bin lid because they weren't the friendliest either. So we had to go into their enclosure for feeding and cleaning with a bin lid as protection. <laughs> they were there for a few days while they kind of rested and went on to their onward journey. So, yeah, that was interesting. But a lot of different animals sort of coming through. It's, it's amazing, actually, to see the animals sort of come again, not only dogs and cats, but reptiles and things for the pet trade and fish and stuff. So, yeah, those are the two sort of standout moments for me, the, the civets and the savannah cats. For people who don't know about civets, it's, it's a, a vivarid is the... Yeah. Africa and Asia, there's different types. And they're almost like a small dog stroke small cat. They're almost in between dog and a cat, aren't they? But they're sort of very nocturnal. Yeah, they are, yeah. And um, feisty things. What were they like in sort of captivity? Exactly as you described, quite feisty. We used to have um, a red light on with them, I think, for the for nocturnal purposes. But yeah, very feisty, not really wanting to know you very much. 
you know, when you went in there to sort of feed and clean them and stuff. So, yeah, that, that's what I remember from them. Not a lot of interaction with them, to be honest. You know, we kept it to a sort of minimum. Physically, about about the weight of a domestic cat or a little bit, tiny bit bigger and a bit longer? A little bit heavier, I'd say. Yeah, a little bit heavier, a little bit longer, yeah, than a domestic cat. Yeah, but, but not a lot in size difference, maybe a little bit taller. Fascinating things, Viverids. Yeah, definitely. Excellent. Did, did they intercept anything that was illegal during your time? Because they, they must have to, that, that reception centre must have to deal with exotic animals which have been smuggled through sometimes. Yeah, I think they do. Not when I was there, and certainly maybe I wouldn't have been a party to it, being just like a, a work experience person. I just remember there was a lot of dogs coming through because, like I said, it was cross week. Yeah, they certainly told stories of, of things coming illegal, particularly reptiles. I think that they're quite easy to, to sort of smuggle in. And I've, I've seen the show as well. I think it's on Netflix. I've seen the show and, and I've seen previous episodes where they've, they've intercepted illegal shipments and things. But nothing when I was there, if, if I, don't, I didn't get to know about it, if it was. It was definitely an eye-opening experience for things that, you know, for looking at things that do come into the country and for seeing the sort of exotics that do come into the pet trade and animals like that. So, yeah, it was definitely an eye-opener. And it's just relentless. It's it's ongoing. It's happened in the past and it happens now. So, and I think people who know about customs and border control and, and what animals they see trying to be smuggled through have no problem accepting that there could be some exotic wildcats in Britain sometimes. Definitely, yeah. With that background in your training, you went on to become a zookeeper. Is that right? That's right. Yeah. So um, when I finished my um, animal management degree, I, like a lot of my other colleagues, ended up working in retail, (laughs) applying for hundreds of jobs and feeling very despondent. And after, I would say, kind of like a year, 18 months after I qualified, I decided to sort of spread my wings a little bit further and I managed to secure a zookeeper job abroad. It was a great opportunity and it was a small privately owned zoo that started off as the guy who owned it with his family. He lived on site and he started off rescuing animals. So he first started off with a lion that he he had a painting company and he was painting the roof of this building and he heard the lion and it was kept in a very small cage and he offered to buy it from the owner and they said, yep. So he bought it, built it a bigger enclosure and then it just kind of went from there really. He ended up with a small zoo that he opened to the public on the weekends. The rest of the time, it was just for the family. I was the only zookeeper that worked there at the time, and I would work for sort of four or five hours a day feeding and cleaning all the animals. So they had brown bears, they had lions, lynx, puma, leopards, oh, various monkeys, lemurs. They had baboons. Yeah, so it was great. They had everything, tigers, the works. So it was a great experience, and I don't think I would have got anything like the experience that I had in this country. No health and safety. So I was, you know, in with the animals most of the time. Most of them were hand raised. I, I will sort of mention that most animals were hand raised. So you could sort of go in the enclosure with them, with the exception of the puma and the tigers. They had to be shut away and the lions. They had to be shut away before you went in. But the rest of the animals you could sort of go in with and, and get quite close to them. So that was great. We ended up hand raising a few tiger cubs and things. When they had cubs and the mums didn't sort of know how to deal with them, we took over a few times. So that was, it was great. It was a good opportunity. So it must have made you very streetwise with animals like that. Although, okay, they're more tame because they've habituated as they've grown up, that you still learn snippets about their behaviour. Tell us about what you picked up on pumas and leopards and lynx then in particular. 
I guess the differences between the three from a sort of keeper point of view would be number one would be enclosure design. So the leopards definitely liked a little bit more height in their enclosure. They kind of had a double height uh, enclosure with trunks and things that they could climb up and, and ropes and things and high platforms. With the lynx, the, the two that we had when captive, they preferred a den site. So they preferred something quite closed in. And the puma, the one thing that stood out to me from the pumas was that they, they bury their scat and their food. So from a keeper point of view, it was a bit of a nightmare because you'd have to dig around and find it. The scat, interestingly enough, they would always go in the same place. So that wasn't too bad. But any sort of discarded food would end up buried and you'd have to find it and things. So that was one thing that stood out because I was unaware that they did that before I started working there. And I guess other differences would be what we use as enrichment. So for the lynx, they loved their food up high, their enrichment up high. So we would have a little pulley and would pull their food up high and, and encourage them to sort of jump for it. And he's sort of like about eight, nine feet off the ground. So not hugely high. And the leopards have scent enrichment. So with the leopards, we used traditional things. So we used things like perfume, which I believe a lot of people use in this country as well. But I was very either fortunate or unfortunate, whichever way you want to look at it, that the lions took a bit of a dislike to me when I first started working there. And when I had to feed them, I had to walk through like a feed tunnel and the lions could get on the top. They would get on the roof of where I was crawling through. And the lioness liked to pee on me. Uh. So she would wait on the top for me to walk through and she would time it perfectly right and she'd get me every time. So <laughs> I sort of thought, oh, I wonder, you know, what I could do with this. So I ended up collecting some of it when she used to wee on me and I used to use that in the leopard enclosure. I'd sort of like sent it around and everything and that used to send them crazy. That's a bit naughty, isn't it? <laughs> well, it's enrichment. <laughs> it's just Fair enrichment. Enough. So you know, as an, as an enrichment point of view. So I'd kind of just like dribble it around. So to start with, it elicited a bit of, a, I suppose, a defensive response. And then after that, they used to like to, to roll in it <laughs> and kind of scent mark as, as, as a cat would do in catnip. So we used to use that occasionally. This debate about cats, how good their smell is, their sense of smell. What did you take from that? Obviously, it's different in the wild than, than in captivity. Mm -hmm. But, but what, what did you notice about their smell and their sniffing the air and their response to, to scents? What do you judge about their sense of smell? Everything that we had to use scent-wise had to be very, very strong. So everything we used was very strong. So whether their, their sense of smell is not as great, I'm not sure. But they, liked, they definitely preferred the stronger scents. So the sort of catnip, the perfume, the urine, that kind of thing. They certainly do sniff the air. You know, I've just got a trail camera, a stray cat near me that I'm monitoring on my trail cameras here and feels next to me. And I notice it does sniff the air. Yeah, they, they definitely do. I think that's that's primarily sort of why leopards like to be up high, um, not only for sort of observation purposes, but maybe just as to smell and catch the scents and things. So, yeah, I guess it's different being in a zoo environment because they've been brought up with other big cats in quite close proximity to them. So I guess wild and, and captive would be a different in that sense. The sort of captive cats are, are more used to the sense that we were using because they're smelling it every day. Maybe the wilder sort of counterparts have a better sense or or have a, a bit more streetwise when it comes to scents and things like that. But, you know, because they're smelling it every day and they're in close proximity to the puma and the lion, maybe, you know, they're, they're smelling it, they're a bit habituated to the scent. 
What about this elasticity of leopards that you see in the wild and in uh, captivity if you watch them? They seem to be so bendy and shape-shifting. Did, did you notice that? Or did you? Are all, are all cats, you know, when you studied them, a bit like that? Or I just think it, leopards have it more than most, perhaps. What did you make of that? Definitely, definitely. So um, from a feeding point of view, when um, I used to put their food out, so you'd put the sort of, you'd secure the cats away in their den and then you'd drop the kind of door down and then you were kind of safe to go in and do the cleaning and the feeding. And when you lift the doors back up, the lion and the tigers would kind of sit back and wait for the door to be fully open before they kind of went through. The leopards, as soon as it was cracked, maybe sort of six inches, they were desperately trying to get underneath and they would you know, crawl on their bellies, like you, you would see sort of a domestic cat going through a cat flap or something like that. As soon as it was open, what they thought was big enough to judge, they would squeeze right through and get it. Yeah, very slithery. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, very slithery and and definitely very agile. I mean, they were sort of running up tree trunks and telegraph poles in their enclosure and they would jump from quite a height, you know, down and things. So, so yeah, definitely very agile. A lot more agile than the, the sort of lion. Obviously, lions are a bit bigger, so it they're a bit more cumbersome when it comes to things like that. But even so, I mean, as much as the lynx used to jump up to get their food, they needed a motivation, if you like. The leopard would sort of do this, well, I'd like to say as part of a play um, or just part of their natural behaviour anyway, would sort of be to sort of run up the, the trees or the telegraph pole or whatever. But the lynx definitely needed a bit of motivation to get up and, and be as energetic. Anything about the vocalizations and the calls and things like chuffing did you did you sort of notice and have any lessons on all of that yeah so um the leopard he used to chuff i think he used to use it as kind of like a greeting or, or when he got excited the tigers used to do obviously a lot more of it the tigers would do it all the time as soon as they saw you but i used to drive um a van and because his enclosure was quite up high as soon as he saw me sort of driving up the road he would know that i was going to sort of interact with him and his breakfast was coming i guess so he used to chuff and and when i sort of went into his enclosure he definitely used to do that as well i i did hear the kind of more raspy noise just once or twice from him I worked at the zoo for a couple of years and I only ever heard that once or twice. You know, the kind of, I think it's like a soaring, the raspiness. This is from the leopard? Yeah, from the leopard, yeah. I only heard that a couple of times. And that was, interestingly enough, that was, I don't know whether it, it was to do with it, but that was when the lioness was in heat. That rasping, soaring noise is is about communication to one from another, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. So so that uh, maybe that was in response to her sort of estrus smell or, or something. But yeah, definitely the chuffing I, I took to be a bit of a greeting. I mean, we have done chuffing a couple of times on the podcast, but some listeners may not be familiar. Can, can you just explain the chuffing noise? It's snorty, nostrily sort of sound, isn't it? Yeah, it's 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 kind of like a nasal sound, but it's not as harsh as the, it's not as raspy or as throaty. It's definitely sort of something that comes from the front of their face, if you like. It's just kind of like a rush of air, really, that they, they make with their nose, sort of like a, a fast breathing and in and out kind of noise. And it is generally taken as an acknowledgement. No need for any squabbling here. You know, I'm OK, you're OK. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Almost like a bit of a maybe a submissive sound. Yes. Um, like you're not going to get any trouble from me kind of kind of attitude. I'm excited to see you. You know, that that kind of thing. I'm in a friendly mood. I'm not going to do anything nasty kind of noise. That's how I interpreted it anyway. 
which in the wild they can do it to each other to avoid fights and um, confrontations, yeah. which must save them energy and hassle. And they do it with, I mean, we I've heard of three witnesses in Britain, well, one in Spain, we had him on the podcast mention that he heard a black, black panther, black leopard, make that noise in Spain on his property. Frank Tunbridge had a milkman delivering milk about 5am in the dark, actually encounter a huge big black leopard panther cat in somebody's garden uh, on the outskirts of Gloucester. And he said he was absolutely freaked out, of course. And he didn't know what chuffing was. And he said he described the chuffing sound and said, you know, it made this funny sort of snorty noise through its snout and uh, turned and went off. (laughs) And uh, a perfect description of a chuff. To avoid the confrontation situation, presumably. So there you are. I guess the leopard may have been spooked by a milkman at that time in the morning and just kind of wanted to say, you know, everything's everything's fine here. I'm just leaving. (laughs) Yeah, brilliant. Wow, how incredible. Yeah. Um, What do you take from watching those behaviours in terms of how they behave in the wild? Do you think there are any lessons for our big cat witnesses and big cat observations we have for those cats in Britain? Well, listening to your podcast, I I think that people mainly can feel kind of threatened by seeing them in the wild. And I honestly, I mean, you know, I I hope I don't have to eat my words, but I honestly feel that people aren't generally under threat by these animals in the wild. I've certainly never heard of anything. I mean, a leopard or a big cat will generally only attack if it feels threatened or if it's cornered or if it's got young and and it, it poses a or you pose a threat to it. So I think that generally with their wild sort of behaviour and the captive behaviour that I witnessed. I mean, I obviously, you know, I know these cats were sort of hand raised and and they were habituated to people, but I certainly didn't feel threatened by them. And I don't think there's any sort of real threat to people either in the wild. These cats are around and and it certainly seems that some of your listeners, you know, they have like the the milkman that you just suggested in close proximity to towns and gardens and built up areas. So, you know, I think if that they pose a threat, then definitely, you know, you would have heard of it by now. I think it is because people are so unnerved by the close proximity initially and so that they're they're on edge. But I think when they reflect on it, and we have this on the podcast, they often sort of conclude, well, you know, I think I'd have had to pick the fight. Yes, definitely. Yeah, definitely. And I think that the other behaviours, I think that if, if they're anything, cats are very adaptable. And finding themselves in our sort of countryside, in our kind of environment, I think that they would adapt their behaviour. So I don't think they would behave the same as they would in their native countries. For example, for territory reasons for breeding, I honestly don't think that the big cats that are here would have a strict territory like they do in their own sort of countries. I think they would adapt and I I think they would sort of move and interact because I think mates would be quite scarce or not easily to find in our countryside. So I think they would be less rigid for sort of territory borders and I think they would be more accommodating to other adults and they would move around a lot more freely. Yes, because the territory wouldn't mean much so much here. They're not hemmed in, they don't have to defend it. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. They're they're not under threat. There's, you know, they're not fighting for space. They can just come and go virtually as they please. So that may account to sort of some people seeing sightings in the same area, you know, a a few weeks or a few months on the trot and then not seeing it again, you know, or or maybe seeing the cat come back. There's some kind of pattern. Which makes our detective work very difficult, of course. (laughs) Definitely. Yeah, definitely. And also, I think because there is no predators for these cats, 
in our country. I don't think that the cats would feel a need to sort of drag or hide their carcasses or their kills. I think that they would feel perfectly, you know, at ease and comfortable feeding wherever they felt, you know, they wouldn't have to necessarily drag it up a tree. I know that there have been some sightings of that, but it's not in the norm. It would take a lot of energy. And I've, I've seen it with the, the captive cats that I work with. It takes a lot of energy to kind of stash their kill up a tree or their food up a tree. And I don't think that the cat, a wild cat, where it doesn't know where its next meal is coming from necessarily, I don't think a wild cat would expend that much energy to do that just because, you know, the wild counterparts do. I think that's a good point. Which is a shame in a way, because if you do hoist a carcass, it can be very apparent and then you can put trail cameras in and think, well, you know, there's a cat around. But uh, yeah, they don't leave that signpost. All these things make your job a lot harder. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it's a nice challenge, isn't it? And you've got to give them credit for being so elusive. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. What about scrapes and um, scenting with the back feet you must have seen that going on in the zoos and that can be found but it's very difficult isn't it to still find in in britain because it's such an ephemeral you know and weathered feature and you might get it where you've got pine needles and dry leaves but not all terrain gives you a nice scrape a bit like getting a print as well Yeah, exactly. So I definitely think that there's a lot of that going on. I mean, as we said before, their territory doesn't sort of mean much. They're they're free to roam and and do what they please. So I definitely think they'd be communicating and leaving little signals for each other like that. Um, It's just hard to spot. But yeah, I, I definitely think a lot of that goes on. And yes, I did see a lot of that when I was working at the zoo, you know, I'd mess it up every time and they'd come back and do it again. (laughs) They definitely would have their favorite spots in the enclosure where they would do that. And you could guarantee that when you went in there the next day, they'd remarked it and re-sort re of scraped it out. So, yeah. Quite a noticeable crescent form. Yeah, absolutely. So, if conditions were perfect and you saw it in the leaf litter, it's not something that you could easily miss. I suppose the substrate that we use in the enclosure were bark chippings, kind of like the dark bark chippings that you might put in the garden. And then a hard sort of dirt floor and concrete under that. So, you can definitely see it where it's marked out. I would say the scrapings that I saw were maybe you know, 12, 18 inches long as a sort of crescenty mark. You know, it's not something that you would miss if conditions were perfect, but obviously with the weather conditions and the, the substrate on the floor that you'd find here, not easy to see. But yeah, if, if conditions were perfect, you definitely wouldn't miss it. Very different from dogs, more messy. They just flick the stuff all over the place, don't they? They don't make a little mound, really. That's right. So yeah, def- definitely. You, you could distinguish it from dogs, yeah. Absolutely. And where do you stand on this thing about how quickly a released or escaped one could go properly wild and feral and look after itself rather than want to come back for food the next day because it was used to being fed? Do you think that that can just vary depending on the individual or do you think there there is a sort of general rule about that and they would prefer being feral and so they'd, they'd adapt to being wild quickly and just look at the first rabbit and think, right, I'm snatching that and then, you know, they're, then they're away? Or do you think that if they haven't been taught to kill and hunt by their mother, they're going to take a while to adjust and so they don't go feral that quickly. I think that there's not a captive cat out there that would prefer being wild to start with because, you know, they have their food on tap, they have no predators, they've got their own little territory. So I think captive cats wouldn't choose to be wild if they had the choice. I think they're quite like their sort of human slaves and their butlers to come and give them fresh food and water every day. But I think if if one did escape or one was set free, I think initially you probably would see it hanging around the area um, from where it was it was sort of dumped or escaped from. 
But then I don't think that would last very long. I think hunger would be the motivation to move on. And I, I certainly don't think it would be long before they made their first kill. I think that instinct is in them. You've only got to see with a domestic cat, you know, that somebody keeps as a pet where they, they go out and they'll catch a mouse or a rat or in some cases even a rabbit, you know, the, a rabbit young. That instinct is always ingrained. And I think hun- hunger would be the main driver and the main motivation there. I don't think it would take long at all. Initially, they would probably hang around and think, you know, where's where's my dinner? But then when it was apparent that that wasn't going to happen, I think they would move on quite quickly. Especially if wild game is is fairly easily available. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, they've only got to see a bunny sort of hop past them and, and the instinct would be there, you know, the, the drive would be there. Not saying that they'd be successful in their first attempts, but, you know, hunger, hunger again would drive them on to sort of perfect their techniques. And being maybe kept in a zoo, um, in this country, you tend to be more hands off. So if it was a zoo animal that escaped, I think they would sort of be quite elusive and, and stay out of the way of people. But again, if it was a pet that had been habituated to seeing people every day and maybe had a bit more interaction with people, then I think it would kind of feel comfortable around people. I wouldn't necessarily move on. But the cat that I saw was definitely confident. And you've got to presume that that was kind of like a maybe an escaped one. I'm not sure that time in the 90s. It definitely wasn't scared of me is what I'm trying to say. You know, it was definitely just like, yeah, I acknowledge you. You're no threat to me. I've seen your, your type before and I'm moving on kind of attitude. I think very quickly they would adapt and and be self-sufficient. When you were handling these cats, did it make you think about your encounter with your black one back in Somerset? It did. Yeah, particularly because the leopards that we had at the zoo, one was kind of like the natural spotty, sandy colour, and one was a black leopard. Okay. So, yeah, it definitely brought back memories. The the black leopard that I worked with, um, she had beautiful rosettes. So when the sun shone, her fur was kind of blacky brown and you could see her rosettes underneath. She had a beautiful coat. So again, that may account for people seeing some kind of like a different shade. You know, she was almost chestnutty brown in the in the height of the summer when the sun shone on her coat. It was almost like a chestnutty brown with the rosettes underneath. So she she was beautiful. And feeding this view that we get that they don't like mutton so much, you know, naturally, and the, and they don't kill sheep naturally so much as we might expect. D- did you see any evidence of that from what they got fed and their attitude to their different meat that they were fed in your experience? Yeah, so definitely. So our, our cats, I will say, were quite spoiled. Um, we did have two starved days, so they'd only get fed four or five days out of the seven. So, yeah, they they were quite spoiled and that allowed them to pick and choose. And they definitely had their favourites. Beef was always a favourite. Again, pork was a favourite. And we did feed them mutton and it did get eaten, but it definitely wasn't a favourite. It was kind of, they would carry it around. They'd spend, the lions particularly would spend more time licking it. The puma would kind of bury his and then go back to it. It was kind of like, well, I'll eat it if there's nothing else or if I'm not going to get something that I like. But yeah, it it did get eaten, but it definitely wasn't a favourite. That's exactly what I've heard from other zookeepers. Why do you think that is? Is it because it's more fatty? Yeah, I guess so. I guess it's a bit more fatty. Maybe it smells a little bit stronger than something else. Um, But yeah, you can only guess. I guess it's like you say, it's the fat content. It's not that nutritious for them, but it definitely wasn't a favourite. And if they've been sprayed and dipped and had have got chemical smells on the fleece, you know, that makes it even less appealing, doesn't it, in, in the wild here when you've got plenty of nice venison and bunnies to pick and choose from. And Absolutely. 
One thing I think we're going to learn about pretty soon in one of our coming episodes is small prey. Small prey like Mm -hmm. rats, mice, voles, leverets. Did you feed them small things? Because I think they find those very nutritious snacks and it's easy because they're going to get some food content from them. They don't have to work hard to get them. So I do think they forage for those. Did you feed them small prey at all? We didn't. We fed them rabbits. But we didn't feed them rats. But the puma and the leopard both killed rats in their enclosure and ate them. When the rats infiltrated, you used to find the, the remains the next day. So they both killed and ate rats, but we didn't feed them as, as part of their normal diet. No, but they chose them themselves. And they decided to eat them. Yeah, yeah. Very good that you got all of that experience. Is that, Sue, still going on? Still um, viable and going? Yeah, it's still, still going on. Yeah, still going on. It definitely opened my eyes to the sort of private sector um, and the stories that he was telling about sort of, you know, animals. And while I was working there, I also was working part time as a vet nurse in a veterinary hospital. And it was open sort of 24-7. And I was the night nurse on duty with a vet. And we got a phone call about two o'clock in the morning, one morning to say, can I bring my cat in? I think it's got parvo. And we said, yes, of course you can, you know, come to the front desk. We'll, we'll let you in. And it was a leopard cub. Wow. <laughs> and this guy, this very nonchalant, he said, you know, can I bring my cat in? And we went, yeah, expecting a sort of domestic moggy. And he, he brought in, uh, you know, a sort of two-month-old leopard cub. <laughs> so, so yeah, it definitely, as as much as I sort of didn't broach the subject about wildcats in, in the UK, it definitely opened my eyes to what can be owned, thankfully, you know. And, and I did have a sort of discussion with my boss at the time and sort of say, you know, if the law changed and people couldn't have these animals, what do you think they'd do with them? And he said, well, they'd either flog them to someone like me or just let them go. Yeah, yeah, because of the emotional commitment. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. Um, hopefully laws are changing and, and things are going to tighten up abroad as, as much as they are here. But yeah, he was very sort of sure that people would just open the door and let them go. That cub that turned up, did you ask whether it had a licence, whether it was legally owned? Yeah, we did, and no. <laughs> oh, really? Okay. Yeah, but you still dealt with it. Yeah, we still dealt with it. Yeah, we, st- we still dealt with it, but um, people were notified. <laughs> okay. But tricky, isn't it? Yeah, there's a moral dilemma for you. Yeah, it's very tricky. Yeah. So you network and have contacts with people who work in the zoo sector in Britain? I do, yeah. Presumably you chat about their views about big cats potentially wild in britain what what kind of view do they have is there you know any trend yeah it's largely mixed so this subject actually came up when we were at uni um with doing our degree course and it was kind of the lecturer brought it up actually we were talking about invasive species uh, that have quite easily naturalized in this country things like the gray squirrel deer crayfish you know things that have been introduced to our environment they're quite happily living here and doing well here thriving the big cat did come up and he had a few sort of pictures that you'd see sort of in the newspapers and stuff. And, and he did sort of bring that up as a topic. Interesting enough, I didn't bring up my sighting, I suppose, just because of the ridicule aspect. I did talk it over with a few friends outside of the lecture, but not, I didn't bring it up in the lecture. It was quite mixed. Some people were sceptical, but the people that have now gone on to, to work in sort of zoos in the UK, 
interesting enough, a couple of ones that were sceptical are, are not anymore because they've had people come up to them in the zoo and say their sightings, you know, and share their sightings with them. So they've, they've come up and said, oh, well, I've, I've seen this and I've seen that. So they've kind of changed their opinion. And I don't know whether they've done a little bit of research independently or not, but the amount of people coming up, and we have actually discussed that when people talk to you and tell you about their sighting, they're all describing the same thing. Everyone sort of says long tail, you know, everyone says the same thing. So it's not like, you know, you get 50 people saying that they've seen the Loch Ness Monster and everyone is different. Every sighting is different. Everyone can describe a different animal. Everyone is describing the same things. So I think that is kind of enough reasoning to, to say that there must be something, you know, there must be some truth in it. There must be something going on. And also dogs react, you know, dogs and horses react. It's not just a human reaction. No, and it's not just that, you know, everyone knows sort of with, with the things of the, like, the internet and, and David Attenborough, everyone knows what one looks like, but it's the behaviour as well that, that gets them as well. It's the behaviour that, you know, what the animal was doing or how it was moving. I think that kind of has helped to change their mind a little bit as well. Can we move on to your interest in the thylacine, if that's okay? Because it's always... We can. What? Yeah, I mean, I always think it's good to learn from other relevant parallel topics, as awkward as they can be, Sasquatch, Bigfoot, thylacine. Yeah. Because, again, we're back to the consistency of witnesses' descriptions in terms of the form and the behaviour and the sounds and whatever. So thylacine in Australia, can, can you brief listeners on a bit of background to that and then tell us what you reckon on the current sort of situation with is thylacine extinct or living on in small numbers and, and what kind of research and evidence is cropping up? Yeah, so so definitely the thylacine is kind of in a roundabout way how I found your podcast because the thylacine group on Facebook championed the sort of Missing Panther podcast from Australia and that in turn kind of led me to your podcast and then I sort of met Annie and Shelley and they said, oh, you must talk to Rick. So that's kind of how I found you in a roundabout sort of way. <laughs> so yeah, so the thylacine basically was a, a marsupial sort of wolf and I think it's captivating and fascinating for me because there's just nothing else like it. There's, you know, nothing else has that kind of jaw span. Nothing else can kind of open its jaw as wide. There's, there's no other large marsupial like that living now. I think because we are directly responsible for it going extinct. I mean, I know species go extinct every sort of, unfortunately, every, every sort of day, week, month species are going extinct but it's kind of indirect if you see what i mean it's kind of habitat loss or it's pollution it's kind of indirect and as much as we're aware of it going on it's nothing that we're doing directly whereas the thylacine farmers in tasmania and in australia they were finding their sheep being predated on and the government sort of in the 1880s they put a bounty on the thylacine's head of one pound per annum and I think that works out to about, I think it's 700 and something odd dollars now in today's money. So it's a, a huge amount of money. And everybody went out and hunted a thylacine. So it, we were directly responsible for it going extinct, if you believe that it is extinct. I'm not going to say, you know, whether you do or you don't. I think the last sighting, it was obviously during the Great Depression as well in the 1930s. So, you know, people short of money, the thylacine, going out and shooting one would be a good sort of money earner. So the last one, I believe, was shot in 1933 in Australia. 
Um, and then the last captive one, Benjamin, he died in Hobart Zoo on, in 1936. And that's, if people Google it, that's, that's the sort of footage that you'll see, the zoo footage. Yeah, very emotional, isn't it, looking at that? Oh, it's, yeah, definitely. And he tragically died because the keeper that was responsible for looking after him locked him out of his den oh. enclosure. So he died in sort of in the winter from exposure. So he died sort of before his time as well. So I think with with me that, that I find it fascinating just simply because there's nothing else like it. You know, there's nothing else that you can sort of point to and say it's like that, but a bit different and a bit scarier. You know, there's literally nothing else like it. And, and yeah, and I, I sort of was sort of Googling it and came across the Facebook group and came across Neil Waters. He um, is sort of the owner and the maintainer of the, the Facebook group. And he does a lot of the sort of tracking and sightings. And he does virtually the same sort of job that you do. He sort of collates sightings. He goes out and puts up trail cams and looks for tracks and that kind of thing. You know, puts fire traps out, that kind of thing. So same sort of thing that people are doing and in, in the listeners and stuff are doing in this country to look for the, the leopards and stuff that he does for the thylacine. He's actually in Australia. So Neil Waters is in Australia. So he goes um, looking in the outback in Australia because he believes that there is a small population in Australia within Victoria. So he does a lot of the same sort of research and a lot of the same sort of things that, that people do in here. With the exception, I think he does, um, he does a lot of noise. He does prey noises and there's not any recorded sound that the Tasmanian tiger makes we haven't got one on record that, of the noise that they make but they do play sort of what they think it sounded like and they, they play sort of prey species and animals in distress as well to try and sort of bring it out. Is there the same issue do you think about people who might see one believe they've seen one uh, keeping quiet about it because they're concerned about the consequences of admitting that they might be around? It's very sort of hush-hush and very secretive and he shares a lot of the sightings on his Facebook group, but they're always anonymous and they're always very vague, the area that, that they've been seen at. But they always come with a very good description um, and a very good, you know, this is what I saw and this is what happened. But the area is very vague. All the details are very vague because, yeah, people are scared of ridicule. People are scared of people, you know, turning up on their land and, and hunting and, and that kind of stuff. So, yeah, it is very sort of hush-hush secretly. But but it's fascinating. It's fascinating. You, you get the same amount of blurry photos and <laughs> nondescript videos and you get the same amount of um, mangy foxes, you know, that people put it down to as you do in this country, you know, the sort of blurry pictures and things. So he's suffering the same sort of problems as, as we are in this country. How stealthy were thylacines, do you think, in their heyday? Not as super stealthy as our cats, presumably. Definitely not. No, I don't think. I think they would have been, obviously nobody knows for sure, but I'm equating it to like a wolf. So I think they would have been a pack animal. I think they would have gone around in a pack and not been very stealthy or very elusive. I think if you had them on your land, you would have known about it. They must have been pretty obvious for people to shoot them. <laughs> if you had them around, you probably could track them down. Yeah, I think you would know about them. And I think they would be a little bit stealthy and a bit wary, perhaps, of people and coming close. But I think if, if they were around, they, were, they must have been pretty easy to sort of trap and shoot because they, they got wiped out. There's an issue here, isn't there, about the viability of a very low population. I mean, to, to, to advance the case yeah. that thylacine lives on, you, you've got to sort of think that, wow, it must be a really relict refuge population uh, and low numbers and, and 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 it has become stealthy and how does that happen but uh, you know i've got an open mind what are you picking up from the research and the feedback that's going on 
like you, I have an open mind. I'd like to think that there is some sort of capsule population somewhere that's still clinging on and still out there. The chances are not very good. Um, it's been nearly a sort of hundred years since the last one was seen in the wild. So, you know, I mean, there is talk of sort of DNA testing and bringing it back. So they're trying to reverse engineer it and things. So that, that's interesting. I think just because of the fact that we wiped them out and there's nothing like it now. And I do think that if we hadn't have wiped them out, I think that they still would have been about. That's the other issue. I think if we hadn't have sort of hunted them into their demise, we, they still would have been about now. They still have that same niche. Their territory is still there. You know, the habitat hasn't been lost. I think quite happily they would have they would have still survived. So I think that's another reason that people, A, want to believe that they're still out there and B, are interested in kind of reverse engineering and bringing them back, potentially, Jurassic Park. <laughs> and there's quite an, an emotional commitment to them, isn't there, in Australia and globally? Definitely, yeah. They're very, they're very proud of it over there. And in Tasmania, they have sort of museums and statues and specimens that you can see so they are very proud that it was once part of their history so yeah definitely the lazarus species it's called isn't it for ivory-billed woodpecker it's very similar in southern states in usa and and again still debates about that and people feel the snippets of tantalizing photographs of the ivory-billed woodpecker living on and very interesting books on that so i think again we can learn lessons i think some of the witnesses feel very aggrieved that they're not taken seriously hunters and um, very local people who are out in the wild all the time who get overlooked by what they would call sort of elitist arrogant professional people you know think well sod this you know i'm not going to bother reporting because i live amongst them and see them sometimes and if nobody believes me well who cares sort of thing Absolutely. Like like a few of your listeners on previous podcasts have said, you know, I know what I saw. I'm quite happy in the knowledge that I saw it. So why should I share it with anybody else kind of attitude? You mentioned sort of ivory billed woodpecker. I mean, it took the, they've recently, I think in 2010, just found a Zanzibar leopard, haven't they? So, and, and caught that on film. So it took 25 years for that to be pictured. That was declared extinct and somebody's caught it on camera. So he used several trail cameras to sort of capture the leopard. And the only one it was pictured on, he used kind of like, I think it's called a HEX, H-E-C-S blanket around his trail camera. Um, and it's supposed to block the electrical energy from the camera. That has been considered that that's going on for the cats. The difficulty is that um, when I'm chatting with people in America who study pumas and they get pumas and bobcats on, on their trail cameras you know, routinely mm -hmm. you know they don't have any excuses you know they they were you know they just say no these can't you know put enough trail cameras out in the right places that you will get these cats they are stealthy but you still can film them but so it's difficult isn't it to know whether we're making excuses for, for small progress <laughs> or or that we we do yeah. need to up our game and try different techniques that well that is interesting yeah i will look into that and we'll we'll put a a little um link about that on the website for this episode i think that's a very relevant thing to consider and it may be that it is it just relates to some individual cats you know that they are picking this up from trail cameras and the Zanzibar leopard is just so awesome, isn't it, in its markings and so striking. Yeah, definitely beautiful. Yeah, okay, right. Well, your attitude to our big cats potentially naturalising in Britain and living on in Britain, living in the wild, what, what do you make of it? And what's your emotional sort of attitude to it all? 
Well, I think as long as they're not posing a threat to people and as long as they're not sort of decimating our livestock or our natural wildlife, then they should just be left to do what they do. Certainly, there's enough invasive deer species for them to predate on. They're just talking about doing a, a cull in Scotland to get rid of some deer. So we've we've definitely got enough prey for them. And I think as long as, you know, the attitude is that if they're leaving us alone, then we should leave them alone. I think it's fantastic. I'm so thankful that I actually got to see one, however long ago it was. And I'd love to see another one. I'd love for the same opportunity again. But yeah, I just think as long as they're not posing a threat to us or our, our wildlife or our livestock, then, you know, what's the problem with them? What's the harm? Yeah. And how do you see it in relation to potentially reintroducing the lynx? Do you see them as a parallel or a competing or there's room for all of them and there are surrogate lynx in a way in the way they behave in the ecosystem? Or does it, you know, is it, would it all come out in the wash and we shouldn't worry too much about all of that anyway? I don't think we should worry too much about it, to be honest. I mean, I think that there's plenty of territory here. There's plenty of prey species here. I think they can quite happily sort of coexist and sort themselves out. I definitely would like to see lynx sort of reintroduced in big numbers. And I think we've definitely got a lot to learn from them if we can sort of radio collar them and track them. I would like to see, you know, a lot of species come back, basically, that we've sort of wiped out. I live in Devon where beavers have just been sort of introduced and they're, they're going great guns here and things. So they're doing really well. There's been quite a good communication and education and community engagement program with that doesn't it i think it shows that you need that you can't just do it in isolation and not tell people and not engage with people so i think it is a it's a social communication thing as well as a wildlife and zoology thing so learning lessons from the beaver but and actually seeing the positive attitudes largely that the result i don't think you can hide it away and do it on the sly and and say look what we did 10 years ago and aren't they doing well (laughs) i think if it's going if it's going to work it has to sort of be with the the support of the public the people that live in the sort of immediate area it has to be unfortunately i think that's one of the sticking points that not everybody has the same attitude and and not everybody wants them but yeah definitely you can't you can't do it without the support and the education And, and it is a fantastic opportunity to sort of you know spread some knowledge and 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 things like that with people so yeah it definitely has to happen with local support yeah good stuff okay well thanks ever so much for covering all these extra points i mean it was a great sighting anyway and uh, it's great to tap all your sort of experience in um, animal behavior and your interest across the the zoo sector and elsewhere anything else we should touch on we haven't covered that you'd like to say before we close off I just would say to people that if they have had a sighting like I had, I don't think there's any sort of shame in, in saying anything and, and don't keep it to yourself. You know, you're easily contactable. There's there's Facebook groups all over the place these days that you can just sort of Google and find your local one. I think that it's important to share these sightings and we need these sightings to be shared so we can gain a bit of knowledge and, and find out, maybe track sort of cat movements and things. So if you do happen to see one, if you are lucky enough, then I think that people should just come forward and say, you know, you can, you can be anonymous. You don't have to sort of do a podcast about it. You don't have to sort of give names and details. You can do it anonymously. I think Shelley has a, um, a survey form that you can fill out anonymously that just gives kind of rough areas and things. I think all that information is vital and we need it to sort of see what, what we've got going on, really. It's all about sample size, isn't it? So the more that people can add to the sample, the better. 
It's a very topical point you, you make there because <laughs> I heard about um, a guy who had a very close encounter with a lynx about three weeks ago. We, we're um, recording this in um, what late August, right at the end of August. So it was sort of um, first half of August. <laughs> he was walking, uh, several people in this neighbourhood in Scotland had seen this lynx and um, it, maybe the dra- it was hanging around because of the drought or whatever. And uh, he was walking his golden lab up, up the lane. It, he was about the last house out the village and... <laughs> encounter this lynx that just wouldn't budge sitting down in the road and hissed at him and made him retreat and he said it in a fight with his dog it would win hands down and he wasn't hanging about and this lady said uh, uh, oh you must come on the podcast and that'd be a great encounter for the podcast and he he just wouldn't because he said I'm a dentist I've got too much to lose but <laughs> so you can yeah oh, it's so frustrating because of course he could come on the podcast and change his name and not admit he was a dentist and it would be a very interesting yeah. encounter to hear about but you can understand it and uh, but it is frustrating nevertheless and I know that actually in Scotland, Paul MacDonald and his team have actually logged that report, those reports of that links where that was. So, you know, it's in the system, if you like, but it'd be nice to have heard from firsthand from, a, you know, a good encounter like that. And uh, because it's the yeah, emotion definitely. and the description, you know, he was up close and we could have, you know, heard a, a nice one from that. But um, there we are. It is tricky. It is. It's beyond a lot of people's comfort zone still, isn't it? But we've got to chip away at that. Definitely. You are involved in the Facebook groups, aren't you? So I know you um, encourage people to join up and swap notes with people on Facebook. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I, even if even if you haven't had a sighting, I think if you you know look for one in your local area because it's always good to know what's going on about you know in your environment. So just join up and and look at other people's encounters and sightings and things. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, because there's local ones for a lot of places, and there's national ones, and I know the national ones all get on well, which is great. And swap notes. Yeah, yeah. One good post on one item will actually spread, won't it? So people don't miss much if they're in one of the national ones. But I think it's good to support your local Big Cat sightings Facebook for your county or whatever as well, because that you're on a local level as well. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Brilliant. Thanks ever so much for your time, Claire, and for your interest. Thank you for everything that you do, Rick. Thank you. I mean, your podcasts are amazing and you you do a great job. So thank you very much. Well, that's lovely to hear. Thank you for that. As we say, it is a team effort. You know, I'm just brokering it for for us all to chip in. We're all learning together, so we'll keep going. Brilliant. Okay. Thanks ever so much, Claire. Take care. No problem. You too. Take care. Okay, straight on to our words of the week, because we're going to follow up on Claire's mentioning of the filming of the Zanzibar Leopard. Our words of the week are electromagnetic shielding. Now, in what follows, we have a bit of an advert for the outdoor clothing company HEX, which is capital H-E-C-S. But there is other electromagnetic shielding fabric available, and we put links to that on the website. Claire mentioned that hex fabric was used in the process of filming the Zanzibar leopard, and that relates to masking or shielding the body's electromagnetic field, and that may be important in not disturbing certain wildlife species which can detect those electromagnetic fields better than other species. Birds especially are sensitive to electromagnetic fields, and certain fish and certain mammals are more sensitive than others. For the hex outdoor clothing, a carbon grid is woven in, like the one on a microwave door. So this blocks the body's natural electromagnetic field, so that animals are unable to detect it. 
although there is still the issue of animals detecting human scent. As well as clothing, we could also consider electromagnetic shielding fabric for trail cameras to help them be less detectable by sensitive wildlife like large cats. I'm sure we'll return to that discussion on future podcasts. On the website, we put various links for videos and products about electromagnetic shielding, from fabric to clothing, including hex clothing. Also on the website, we've put a short extract from the Animal Planet TV series, Extinct or Alive. In that one, you can see the moment when the presenter, Forrest Galante, checks his trail cameras with his crew and how they react when they discover one of the cameras has snapped some glimpses of the Zanzibar leopard. That's a compelling watch, so try and see that if you can, if you've got a spare five minutes. Okay, in terms of coming episodes of the podcast, we had mentioned that we've got a Derbyshire episode due including thermal camera observations. Well, that is coming up, but for the next edition, we'll be out in a Gloucestershire woodland. We'll be discussing sightings in the area, considering how a cat might use the woods, and working out places for trail cameras to film any passing big cat. And that's all with investigator Paul Ramsden. So it's a walk in the woods, thinking like a cat, next time. Finally... A reminder that we are inviting poems and limericks on our big cats, so do please email one if you'd like to enter the competition. We've got one of the submissions to hear now, because I previously said we would read out the contribution by Frank Tunbridge. And in fact, part of this poem relates to what we've just been talking about on the senses of wild animals and big cats. So here is Frank's entry. I could be black, I could be fawn, seen in the woods or on your lawn. Often seen but never found, I leave my paw prints big and round, for trackers to follow, to find my bed, but I'm always just one jump ahead. My senses are tenfold more than yours, so I avoid those cameras you put outdoors, stealthy and cautious, but always around. I'm Britain's big cat that's gone in a bound. So thank you, Frank. Really nice to have that one. And we look forward to having Frank on the episode in which the entries will be read out by him and other guests. The email address for your poems and limericks or anything else you want to get in touch about is rick at bigcatconversations.com. Okay, that wraps up another episode. So a big thanks to our guest Claire and many thanks to everyone for listening in. Look forward to being back soon. Take care of yourselves and bye for now.